when Saul shows up, Saul does something crazy. He takes off all of his clothes, which are a symbol of his authority. As he's prophesying, he takes off the symbol of his authority. So it's pretty clear what God is saying to Saul. So we are picking up in chapter 18, but I do want to start at the end of chapter 17 because there's a really unfortunate chapter break, um, which obviously chapter, chapter breaks weren't part of the original scrolls in the Old Testament. So it sort of starts off in the middle of a story. In chapter 18, it says, now when he had finished speaking, you're like, this is the beginning of a new chapter. Who was speaking? What are you talking about? So let's actually connect that back so that we know what's going on as we enter chapter 18. So we're not starting off cold in the middle of a story that's referencing something in the past. So we'll start off in, in verse 55 of chapter 17 so we can know where we're headed. It says, when Saul saw David going out against the Philistine, so this is after the fight of David and Goliath, he said to Abner, the commander of the army, Abner, whose men or whose son is this youth? And Abner said, as your soul lives, O king, I, I don't know. So the king said, uh, inquire whose son this young man is. Then as, as David returned from the slaughter of the Philistine, Abner took him and brought him before Saul uh, with the head of the Philistine in his hand. And Saul said to him, whose son are you, young man? So David answered, I am the son of uh, your servant, Jesse, the Bethlehemite. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, so now we have the context. David and Saul were speaking together about the death of Goliath. Now we can enter into this chapter with some understanding. So when, they had finished speaking to, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So after the big fight, the David and Goliath fight, Jonathan sees what David did. He sees this guy who stood up for God. And as we know from context in previous chapters, Jonathan has a heart for God and he sees somebody who he is like-minded and is connected with. And he immediately just loves David. And so I have sort of titled tonight, Lessons from the Greatest Bromance in the History of the World, because David and Jonathan, they just, they love each other. They're like-minded and they're they're men who go to battle together. So before we even dig into what's going on, I just want to address this relationship because sort of the modern take on, Saul, on uh, David and Jonathan has been taken way off base. It's like we don't really understand the love that they had for each other and we've taken some sort of cultural idea to try to manipulate what the Bible says to you know, fit our own modern cultural ideas. But the truth is, these are two men of war who are like-minded and love God, uh, and they found solace in that. So this is really, this is, the, this is the biblical maverick and goose, okay? So I say that because Top Gun just came out, and I just watched the first one, and I remember how good the movie is, and uh, how great and how sad it was when Goose died. Um, and that sort of resembles this story a little bit. This is, the this is the biblical maverick and goose. And this is something that we actually understand in society, 
um, but have chosen to somewhat ignore it for the liberal churches. But these guys, they have a bond. They, they love each other. It actually reminds me of, you know, me and my best friend growing up because when my family broke apart, my best friend's family was a stable place for me to go that protected me and helped me stay sane and stable through that rocky ground. And then as I finished dealing with that, his family broke apart and we became closer because of it. And we were together because we went through that emotional battle together. I can't imagine what these two had gone through together, knowing that Saul was already off his rocker and crazy. And they both had to deal with that as well as deal with the life and death situations of battle. So this is the kind of love they have for each other, knowing that they loved each other, they had each other's back in the midst of life and death situations, um, and they could count on each other and know that they both could count on God and hold each other accountable. That's a deep, deep special relationship. So that's what's going on here. Um, so it says, verse two, so we've made it really far. Saul took him that day, and would not let him go home to his father's house anymore. So you already see a couple of verses in, you're getting a glimpse of Saul's attitude. David did something amazing. David did something awesome. He took out this huge monster that nobody else in his army could stand up to, that Saul himself, the biggest man, couldn't stand up to, that even his son Jonathan, who had already been on God's side, couldn't take on. David was the only one who could take this guy on. And so Saul refuses to let him let this guy go and even to see his father. And he takes him. I like the wording there because it really shows the possessiveness of Saul and how self-centered he was. So then Jonathan and David made a covenant because he loved him as his own soul. So Jonathan and David, they make an agreement together. They're together. They're going to they're gonna fight together. They're going to die together. And Jonathan took off the robe that was on him and gave it to David with his armor, even to his sword and his bow and his belt. So I just want to look at the contrast here. Saul took David, and he wants to usurp David's success for his own glory and make sure that he has that on his side. Saul is possessive. Saul, Saul is self-centered. Jonathan, on the other hand, is not worried about his own kingdom, is not worried about himself. Jonathan actually takes off all of the symbols of his authority and places it on David. That's, humil that's beautiful humility. I just wanted to highlight that because you're looking at a, a striking difference between Saul and Jonathan in reference to David. And then verse 5, David went out uh, wherever Saul went, him, and behaved wisely. And Saul set him over the men of war, and he accepted, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. So now it had, it had happened uh, as they were coming home when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine of Goliath that the women had come out of all of the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, with musical instruments. So the women sang and they, they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands. So Saul's happy right now. But then the second line is, and David, his ten thousands. Now, to be fair, David has killed one guy, right, famously. But his 
his action, his bravery was so big and the story around him became so big that he's already attributed as better than the king, right, in the people's eyes. So Saul, in verse 8, very angry, was very angry. And the saying displeased him. And he said, they've ascribed David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. And in other translations, it will say like with jealousy or envy because Saul is bitter now about David. He was trying to take the victory by taking David into his house and taking him away from his family. Saul is trying to increase his own glory and he's really upset that it has been pinned on David instead. And this, is, this really sets the tone for the rest of this book. Everything else that we read in these people in their history it really, this is the crux of it. The way that Saul behaves, the way that Jonathan behaves, the way that Samuel behaves, the way that David behaves, all of this, this is the moment where things pivot. And the tone of this book changes because even though Saul had already gone crazy, now it's gonna get really bad. And so Saul was angry and this displeased him. They ascribed to him thousands and to David ten thousands. And Saul eyed David from that day forward. And so it happened on the next day that a distressing spirit from God came upon Saul and he prophesied in the house. So David played music with his hand as at other times, but there was a spear in Saul's hand and Saul cast the spear for he said, I will pin David to the wall. And David escaped his presence twice. Now this actually gives us a lot of insight about David because Saul Saul's heart turned against David because Saul was about self-preservation. He wasn't concerned about what God wanted. He wasn't concerned about the good that David was doing for the people in the kingdom. As a servant of Saul, David was serving Saul faithfully, even so much that when Saul was distressed and the spirit came upon him, David was still trying to help him through the power of the worship music that he was playing. But Saul was so far gone that his hatred for David made him want to kill him. And interestingly, we find out just in this one verse that David escaped death twice. Meaning, David gave Saul more than one chance. He didn't hold anything against him. He consistently tried to help the king and tried to be his servant and tried to be faithful. That tells us a lot about his character. And it, it again reminds me of Jesus's words about loving your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. David continually tried to help Saul, even in the face of death. And then verse 12, interesting, says, now Saul was afraid of David. You would think that it would be swapped, but Saul in his selfishness, Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him and had departed from Saul. Therefore, Saul removed him from his presence and made him his captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul uh, saw that he had behaved very wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. This is interesting. Now, David continues to serve Saul even when Saul is intentionally putting David in harm's way because he's hoping that he'll die. And David 
keeps being wise, keeps getting victories, and in doing so, the people love David more. Um, So everything that Saul is doing is backfiring on him. I bring this up as something to remember, maybe even to highlight or bookmark, because this is a lesson that David should have learned that he didn't take with him later in his life. And we'll get to that in 2 Samuel. So then Saul said to David, here is my older daughter, Mirab. I will give her to you as a wife, only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. For Saul Saul thought, let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. So David said to Saul, who am I? And what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be the son-in-law to the king? So here's what's happening. They made an agreement. Whoever killed Goliath would get to marry Saul's daughter. Saul is honoring that agreement, but in doing so, he's also attempting to put David in harm's way. He wants to offer David to be the son-in-law of the king, to be part of the royal court, but also to earn a military position that will consistently put him in harm's way because Saul wants David dead. Again, remember, this is a lesson David should have learned about how not to treat your faithful soldiers. But David, on the other hand, is humble. And he says, who, who, who am I? Look, I'm small. I was just a shepherd. He didn't consider the victory over Goliath his victory. He considered it God's victory. And he said, I don't deserve to be in the royal court. I can't, I can't do that. And so it happened at the time when Mirab, Saul's daughter, should have been given to David, that she was given to Adriel, the Maholathite, as a wife. Now, Michal, Saul's daughter, loved David, and they told Saul, and the thing pleased him. So Saul said, I will give her to him, that she may be a snare to him, that the head of the Philistines, or that the hand of the Philistines may be against him, Therefore, Saul said to David a second time, you shall be my son-in-law. Now, this is interesting because Saul's so far gone, he doesn't really even care about his kids. He finds out that his other daughter, Michal, has a thing for David. And he gets excited because he thinks Michal will be a snare to him, will cause David to stumble, and he's excited about that. He doesn't care about Michal's future. He only cares about messing up David's life. Um, And so he's excited, and he says, Be my son-in-law, David. And Saul commanded his servants, Communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you, and his servants love you, so therefore become the king's son-in-law. And Saul's servants spoke those words in the hearing of David, and David said, Does it seem to you a light thing to be the king's son-in-law, seeing I am a poor and lightly esteemed man? So David's very humble. He doesn't really understand or at least seem to take the praise that people have heaped on him. And he's like, I'm just, I'm not, a, I'm not important. But also, I'm poor. How on earth could I be part of the royal family? How could I be part of the royal court? I'm just a shepherd. I don't understand. Uh, it's not okay for me to do that. And he's apprehensive knowing that he really doesn't have the means to pay for the dowry. And so he, he can't fulfill what Saul is asking him. 
And the servants of Saul told, told him, saying, in this manner David spoke. So Saul said, thus you shall say to David, the king does not desire any dowry. So he's not looking for a payment. He's not looking for money. Instead, he's looking for 100 foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased David to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired. David says, I can't, I'm, I'm humble, I'm not, I'm not important, I don't belong in the king's court, I can't afford to be in the king's court, I can't pay for a dowry. And Saul comes up with this ingenious plan. He says, oh, I've got it. If this works out, he'll die. If he doesn't die, he'll end up with Michal, and she'll, be, she'll get him in trouble. So either way, I'm going to mess up David's life. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to send David out. Instead of paying me gold or silver or crops or livestock, I'm going to send him out to kill 100 Philistines and give me proof of that. And uh, that way he has to go out to war, put himself in danger. Hopefully he'll die. That's Saul's plan. David, on the other hand, hearing this, it says, it pleased David, which is great. I just, I love the heart of David and everything. And uh, David, this man of war, hears, go kill God's enemies. And he goes, nice. I'm going to be the king's son-in-law. That's great. So David, therefore, arose and went, he and his men, and killed 200 men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full count to the king. Um, gross, that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as a wife. So David is psyched, and he gives the king double what he asked for. Um, so gross, but way to go, David. Really, I just, I don't know what to say about that. I just think it's funny. I, the whole thing is just comical to me that David really takes this in, in a different direction than I would have expected. Now Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was whenever they went out that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul that his name became highly esteemed. So now I've got the setup for the next two chapters. David and Jonathan have this great friendship. They take care of each other when they go to battle. They can count on each other. Now they're officially brothers because he's, he's the king's son-in-law. Saul hates David. Saul couldn't care less about his kids. You've already seen that in the way that he takes care of Michal um, and hopes that she's going to be a snare to David. And we'll find out why fairly soon. And so these are the characters this is their motivation. Now we get to the two chapters of the greatest bromance in history. Now Saul spoke to Jonathan, his son, and to all of his servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted greatly in David. Now, if you had someone you knew you could count on in life or death situations, I imagine you would be pretty fond of them as well. So Jonathan told David, saying, My father Saul seeks to kill you. 
I can't imagine that conversation. Hey, buddy, my dad wants to kill you. Um, Therefore, please be on your guard until morning and stay in a secret place and hide. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are, and I will speak with my father about you. Then what I observe, I will tell you. So he's gathering information for David. He's going to tell him what he figures out based on his conversation with his dad. Can he talk him out of this? So Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, let not the king sin against his servant, against David, because he has not sinned against you. And because of his works have been very good towards you. For he took his life in his hands and killed the Philistine. And the Lord brought about a great great deliverance for all of Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then will you sin against innocent blood to kill David without a cause? So Jonathan is acting on behalf of David. And he says to his father, why do you want to kill him? What has gotten in your head? You were there. You saw what happened. David decided to put his life into his own hands on your behalf. And then he, he came across this amazing victory. And when you saw it, you were happy about it. And it protected all of us. And David hasn't done anything against you at all. Why do you want to kill him? And Saul responded. So Saul heeded the voice of Jonathan and Saul swore, As the Lord lives, he shall not be killed. Jonathan gets through to Saul for a little while. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan told him these things. So Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as in times in the past. This is honestly, it's like a Lifetime movie. This, it, it's amazing to me how much insight God has put into the scriptures. Because this really is This is the psychology of of an abusive relationship. This is what you hear from like battered women's stories. And Saul tries to kill David. He's an abusive person. And And then he goes, oh, I won't do it again. I swear, I promise I won't kill you. Come, it's gonna be good. It's gonna be all good in the family. Come on back. And what does he do? He tries to kill him. <laughs> so it, if, if there was a section of scripture for counselors to read, this is it. Um, because this is like the psychology of abusers. And it all starts with being extremely self-centered and how the, only caring about how the world affects you rather than how the world affects everybody. And there was war again. And David went out and and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a mighty blow, and they fled from him. So now the distressing spirit came from the Lord. So first of all, David does something good again, and he protects Israel, and he's a mighty warrior. And what happens? A A distressing spirit from the Lord came upon Saul as he sat in his house with his spear in his hand, and David was playing music with his hand. And Saul sought to pin David to the wall, Uh, with the spear, but he slipped away from Saul's presence and he drove the spear into the wall. So David fled and escaped the night. So this is the third time. Now David is continually forgiving, continually forgiving, continually giving Saul more chances, continually caring about him um, and offering his forgiveness and, and loving Saul and trying to help Saul. This distressing spirit came upon Saul and what's David doing? Trying to soothe him again, even though he had already been tried 
Saul had already tried to kill him twice doing this, and this is the third time. David is just trying to take care of the king. Now, Saul also sent messengers to David's house to watch him and to kill him in the morning. And Michal, David's wife, told him, saying, if you do not save your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal protects David. She says, if you don't, if you don't hide tonight, my dad's going to kill you. So Michal let David down through a window, and he went and fled and escaped. So Michal right now looks like a, like a hero. Now we're going to see what Saul was talking about when he thought Michal might be able to trip David up. He said, and Michal took an image and laid it in the, in the bed, put a cover of goat's hair for his head and covered it with clothes. So how does she protect David's identity and protect that David had left? She takes an idol. This image, what they're talking about in the scripture, is an idol. It's a household god. It's a pagan god, a statue of a pagan god that she had, that she worshipped, that she put in the bed to play the role of David. And she dressed it up to look like David. So Saul must have been thinking, maybe I can get God to not be on David's side if I get him together with Michal and she can trip him up. Because Michal is clearly not following God. Which is not surprising because she didn't have the best influences considering how Saul is behaving. And so when Saul sent his messengers to take David, she said, he's sick. He's, look, he's lying in bed. He's not even moving. Then Saul sent the messengers back to see David, and they said, bring, up, bring him up to me in the bed that I may kill him. So Saul's going to try to kill a sick David in bed. And when the messengers had come in, there was the image in the bed with a cover of goat's hair on his head. Then Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me like this and sent my enemy away so that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul by saying, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? So she answers in exactly the opposite of the story. So she's also kind of a liar. And David fled and escaped and went to Samuel at Ramah. Now Samuel has, is back in the story. David has gone to see the prophet, and he told him all that Saul did. And he and Samuel went to stay in Nioth. Now it was told, Saul saying, take note, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David, and when they saw the group of prophets prophesying, and Samuel standing there as leader over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. And when Saul was, was told, he sent other messengers, and they prophesied likewise. Then Saul sent messengers again a third time, and they prophesied also. Then he also went to Ramah and came to the great well at Seku. So he asked and said, where are Samuel and David? And someone said, indeed, they are at Nioth and Ramah. So he went there to Nioth and Ramah. Then the Spirit of God was upon him also. And he went on and prophesied until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he stripped off his clothes and prophesied before Samuel in like manner and lay down naked all that day and all that night. Therefore, they say, is Saul also among the prophets. Now, this scene seems kind of funny. seems a little interesting, but this is what's happening. Saul finds out where David is, so he sends out people to go get him. When, the, when Saul's messengers show up, they get caught up in the spirit around Samuel, and they just begin to start prophesying and speaking what the spirit of God is saying, which means they 
fail in their attempt, they cannot complete their task. And Saul goes through this three times before he says, that's it, I'm going to do it myself. And Saul goes to Samuel. And Saul gets caught up in the spirit around Samuel and he starts prophesying. And then he tears his clothes off and lays naked. And then the people say, is Saul among the prophets? Now, why is this interesting? Because when Saul shows up, Saul does something crazy. He takes off all of his clothes, which are a symbol of his authority. As he's prophesying, he takes off the symbol of his authority. So it's pretty clear what God is saying to Saul. You're done, buddy. Your kingdom has come to an end. And then it ends by bookending the very same thing that happened when Samuel be, or when Saul became the king. When Saul became the king, he prophesied, and the people came up with that saying, is Saul among the prophets? And so it ends, his, it ends the same way. Saul's humiliation ends with him prophesying about, he prophesies about the end of his own kingdom. And then people say, is Saul among the prophets? And so that's a really interesting thing that God does. And, and God is such a good storyteller in the way that he puts people's lives. And he continually gives Saul opportunity after opportunity after opportunity, and he just doesn't see it. And so what happens? David then fled from Nioth and Ramah and went and said to Jonathan, what have I done? What is my iniquity? What is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? So David gets away from that situation because Saul gets caught up in the spirit just by being near Samuel. And David leaves and he goes and sees his friend Jonathan. And he says, what did I do? Why does your father want to kill me? What on earth have I done to him? Now, David hasn't done anything. All he's done is serve him and try to help him. And Jonathan says to him, by no means you shall not die. Indeed, my father will do nothing either great or small without first telling me. And why should my father hide this thing from, from me? It's not so. So then David took an oath again. Your father certainly knows that I have found favor in your eyes. And he has said, do not let Jonathan know this lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. Now, Jonathan says, David, you're overreacting. My dad tells me everything. There's no, he already told me he wasn't going to kill you. You're overreacting. Come on. And David says, no, you don't understand. Jonathan, your dad knows how close we are. He knows that we're friends. He knows that we protect each other in the battlefield. He knows that we love each other like brothers. There's no way that he's going to let you in on what's happening. You don't understand. I am just one misstep away from dying because your father is so intent on killing me. So Jonathan says to David, whatever you yourself desire, I'll do it for you. And David said to Jonathan, indeed, tomorrow... <clears throat> Tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit with the king to eat. But let me go, that I may hide in the field until the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David, earnestly ask permission of me that he might run over to Bethlehem, his city, for there is a yearly sacrifice there for all the family. 
If he says thus, it is well, your servant will be safe. And if he is very angry, be sure that that evil is determined by him. Therefore, you shall deal kindly with your servant, for you have brought your servant into the covenant of the Lord with you. Nevertheless, if there is iniquity in me, kill me yourself. For why should you bring me to your father? So David tells him, here's the plan. I'm going to hide. You go talk to your father. It's a festival, so he expects me to be at his table. I won't be there. You just tell your dad that I've gone to celebrate with my family because there's a sacrifice and I wanted to worship. If Saul, is, if Saul says, fine, good for David, then I was wrong, and we can live with that. But if your father gets upset and is angry that I'm not there, you know I'm not telling the truth. And if I'm not telling the truth, Jonathan, you kill me. It's better for you to kill me than your dad. I'd rather you do it. So this is the deal that... that David is making with him. And so Jonathan said, far be it from you, for if I knew certainly that evil was determined by my father to come upon you, then I, would I not tell you? Of course I would. So David said to Jonathan, who will tell me, or what if your father answers, me rough, answers you roughly? So Jonathan said to David, let us go to the field. So both of them went out to the field. Jonathan said to David, the Lord God of Israel is witness. When I have sounded out my father sometime tomorrow or the third day, and indeed there is good toward David, and I did not send to you and tell you, may the Lord do so, and much more to Jonathan. But if it pleases my father to do you evil, then I will report it to you and send you away that you may go in safety. So he's basically saying, look, I will make sure that you find out what's going on. And if I fail to do so, then may God kill me because I am going to take care of you, David. That's Jonathan. That's what he's saying. So the Lord be with you. He has not been with as he has been with my father. And you shall not only show me the kindness of the Lord while I still live, that I may not die, but you shall not cut off your kindness from my house forever. No, not when the Lord has cut off every one of the enemies David of David from the face of the earth. So Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, let the Lord require it at the hand of David's enemies. Now, Jonathan again caused David to vow because he loved him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. So Jonathan said to David, tomorrow is the new moon. You'll be missed because your seat will be empty. And when you have stayed three days, go down quickly and come to the place where you hid on the day of the deed and remain by the stone Ezel. Then I will shoot three arrows to the side as though I shot a target. And I will send a lad saying, go, find the arrows. If I expressly say to the lad, look, the arrows are on this side of you, get them and come. Then as the Lord lives, there is safety for you and no harm. But if I say this to the young man, look, the arrows are beyond you, go your way for the Lord has sent you away. And as for the matter which you and I have spoken of, indeed the Lord be between you and me forever. So this is the plan. Jonathan's going to do some sleuth work. He's going to figure out what Saul's really thinking if he really wants to kill David. David's going to hide. And their little code for whether or not David should run or stay is Jonathan's going to do target practice for archery. And he's just going to tell a kid, hey, if the arrows are close to the target and they're just next to the target, come and bring them back to me, then you know you're safe. But if I shoot the arrows way beyond the target and I send the kid way beyond the target, then you know you need to get away. 
So this is sort of fun double code. He's shooting the arrows in a way that make him understand. Um, if, the, if the arrow is beyond the target, I'm telling you basically you're the target and you need to get away from, away from Saul. So that's the plan. And uh, David hid in the field, verse 24. Uh, David hid in the field, and when the new moon had came, the king sat down to eat the feast. Now the king sat on a seat, as at other times, on a seat by the wall. And uh, Jonathan arose, and Abner sat by Saul's side. But David's place was empty. Of course it was. We just talked about that. Nevertheless, Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought something has happened to him. Um, he is unclean. Surely he is unclean. So basically, Saul's thinking, David's not here the first night of the feast, Something must have happened where he's ceremonially unclean, and he's just taking care of that. No big deal. And then it happened that the next day, the second day of the month, that David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has the son of Jesse not come to eat, either yesterday or today? So Jonathan answered Saul, David earnestly asked permission of me to go to Bethlehem. And he said, please let me go, for our family has a sacrifice in the city, and my brother has commanded me to be there. And now, if I have found favor in your eyes, please let me get away and see my brothers. Therefore, he has not come to the king's table. So the plan's in motion. And then Saul's anger was aroused against Jonathan, and he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. It's really eloquent taunts, I guess, in biblical times. Perverse, rebellious woman. Do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on this earth, you shall not be established, nor your kingdom. Now, therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. This gives us a lot of insight into what Saul is thinking. And we've talked about it already. Saul is extremely selfish, and he is expecting his son to act the same way. The people love David. David's in the royal family now. If we don't kill him, you're going to lose your chance at being king. And Jonathan answered Saul, his father, and said to him, why should he be killed? What has he done? That's a really good question because the answer is nothing. Then Saul cast a spear at him to kill him, by which Jonathan knew that it was determined by his father to kill David. So let's just break down Saul's argument. If you don't get David here for me to kill him, you're going to lose your chance at being king. And when Jonathan says no, Saul tries to kill Jonathan. So I think he's lost all of the persuasiveness in his argument because Saul's willing to kill him. What chance does he have to be king anyway? So Jonathan arose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food for the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had treated him shamefully. It's a great word. Because it's true. We avoid the word shame in the culture today, but it is true. Some things are shameful, and we should feel ashamed. There's nothing wrong with being convicted of things that are shameful. If you're trying to kill somebody, you should be ashamed. It's true. And so it was in the morning that Jonathan went out into the field at the time appointed with David, and a little lad was with him. And he said to his lad, now run, find the arrows which I shoot. As the lad ran, he shot an arrow beyond him. When the lad had come to the place where the arrow was, which Jonathan had shot, Jonathan cried out after the lad and said, is not the arrow beyond you? 
And Jonathan cried out after the lad, Make haste, hurry, do not delay. Jonathan's lad gathered up the arrows and came back to his master, but the lad did not know anything. Only Jonathan and David knew of the matter. Then Jonathan gave his weapons to his lad and said to him, Go, carry them to the city. As soon as the lad had gone, David arose from a place toward the south, fell on his face to the ground, and bowed down three times. And they kissed one another, and they wept together, but David more so. This is very cultural, right? These two Middle Eastern Jewish men who had been to war together, had protected each other in battle, they're not going to see each other again. They cared about each other. They knew that they had each other's back. In fact, this, this might even be the moment that's the reason that Jonathan dies. Because they, the person who had his back wasn't there in the battle where Jonathan dies later on. And they were driven apart by Saul's selfishness. And so they're weeping together. It's almost like they know we're not really going to see each other again. The one person I've depended on to keep me alive who actually has become my brother because you married my sister. I'm not going to see you again. And I'm doing it for, the good, for a good reason. This is, this is something, this is maybe a story that really people in the military understand. You know, something that maybe I, I don't fully grasp. I mean, the closest I come to grasping this is the Bubba Gump Shrimp Corporation from Forrest Gump. You know, that's about as close as I get to really understanding how important these people are to each other and seeing how, you know, in the movies, how they react I got to say, I get it. So Jonathan said to David, go in peace, since we have both sworn in the name of the Lord, saying, may the Lord be between me and you and between your descendants and my descendants forever. So he arose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So Jonathan and David, they just promised to take care of each other and each other's families as they get older. And David ends up, we'll learn more about that, but David ends up keeping that covenant with Jonathan when he becomes king. But as, as we look at these three chapters and the story here, it's really focused on, on three people. And we see the applications from these three different people. David, David was a man who was anointed by God. God was with him. God had already offered him everything. Samuel had anointed him as king. He keeps winning in battle. Everything is going David's way, but David refuses to take it for himself. He waits on God's timing. He does the opposite of what Saul did when Saul became king, who became quickly arrogant and very self-serving. David sits and waits on God, and even though he's been anointed, even though God is with him, everything that's been given to David he ends up still serving and being humble to a man who wants to kill him. That's David. So what I think we can learn from him is very much what Jesus said. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Because if you're doing what God has asked you to do, God will be on your side. And the second person is, is Jonathan. This man who loved David. And Jonathan was not anointed as the next king by God. But according to man's structure, Jonathan had the legal right to the kingdom. 
Jonathan was next in line to be the king as Saul's son. But this is how Jonathan reacted. Jonathan knew because of his connection with God, who God had called to take that job on. And so Jonathan gave David his authority. Jonathan took off his armor and his clothes at the end of the battle with the Philistine with Goliath, and he foisted that onto David because he had recognized and humbled himself before David. So rather than taking what was legally his according to man's standards, Jonathan gave up what he could have had in this world to stand by God's will and humble himself and love his friend. And that reminds me of what Jesus said to his disciples. Love one another as I have loved you. Then the world will know that you are mine. In the way Jonathan loved David, he exalted David. It's, it also reminds me of John the Baptist, right? Now, John the Baptist was a man who people considered to have authority. The Pharisees even came, and the people even came and asked him, are you Elijah? And he said, no. He said, are, are you the prophet, the one that Moses talked about, the one that's going to be like Moses? And he said, no, no, I'm not. But what John the Baptist did say when his disciples came to him as their ministry started to shrink, and their ministry started to shrink because people were leaving John the Baptist's ministry and starting to follow Jesus. And when his disciples came to him and asked him about that, because they were jealous for John, John said, he must become greater, I must become less. That's what John did with Jesus. That's what Jonathan did with David. And there's a connection there, right? Because they're also related through marriage as well. Uh, so just sort of a foreshadowing of events there. Since the Messiah is the one who must become greater through the line of David, Jonathan recognized that and he humbled himself. But then the last person is Saul, and I think this is where we can really take the most from this story, right? Now, Saul, Saul was rejected uh, by Samuel and by God as king, but then he was given another chance. He was given another chance uh, to wipe out the Amalekites, and he failed, and he's rejected again. And then this Philistine comes up, uh, and he offers David a chance to do what God's going to do through David. Now, Saul didn't take the fight. David did. And then he takes David into his household um, because he's trying to gain respect for himself by taking in mighty warriors as though he's a great king who's taking in mighty warriors. Instead, David earns the respect of the people. And instead of Saul being happy for the protection of the people and the great things David does and the fact that David was acting in service to Saul, Saul tries to kill David several times. But David keeps forgiving him. David keeps coming back and serving Saul. David keeps giving Saul multiple, multiple, multiple opportunities at another chance. And Jonathan even gives his father another chance after he tells him that he wants to kill David. And he doesn't even believe David when he says that Saul wants to kill him because Saul gave Jonathan his word that he wasn't going to kill David. This reminds me of God with us, right? God gives us chance after chance after chance, and he will continue to work in our lives 
He will continue to give us opportunities to see him, to see his forgiveness, to see what he wants for us. But Saul would rather cling to what he thinks is his, which is his throne, when it was never his throne to begin with. It was God's throne, and it was God's choice to whom he was going to give it. And rather than relinquishing that and serving God and giving up his pride and being blessed because he would choose to finally see God in his life, he chose to stay prideful, to stay arrogant, and try to hold on to his material goods, and he ended up being cursed for it. And that's humanity. God has given us every opportunity to see him. Every person. He has given us every opportunity to see his work in this world, in this universe, and in our lives. And if we refuse to acknowledge it, then we've pitted ourselves up against the law and we will earn God's judgment because we've rejected God's mercy. So those are the three people. Those are the three applications. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. I don't know how we could possibly in this culture really grasp the type of relationship that Jonathan and David had. But I hope you can give us something close. I feel like maybe the closest relationship you give us to that is, is the one we marry, the person we marry. But that's not the same as a, as a, a brother or sister you go into battle with. So God, I, I pray that you can help, help us see that relationship and understand what it means to have fellowship and accountability and someone you can trust to help keep you connected to scripture, to your word, to your love, to know that we fight together on your behalf. I pray for relationships like that to flourish again because we live in a society where relationships are much more shallow. But God, when you read it, when you see it, I know how much I desire that. I desire that for the kids that come here for youth group. I desire that for all of the people here who attend. I pray that we can be together as a family who can depend on each other in the battle and know that we can hold each other accountable to love you. I pray that this study has helped us become more aware of that, helped us become more aware of you so that we can be better servants of you and better brothers and sisters to each other. In Jesus' name, amen.